Good morning, church. So good to be with you. I've been preaching at Sturdy in the last two weeks, but it's good to be back home. And um, I'm very encouraged by this morning's time in the Lord. And uh, just if you have your Bibles, won't you please turn to Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27. You may have it as an app on your phone. Uh, it's Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27. And uh, we're going to be working our way through all the way to verse 44. It's, uh, Lord Jesus says, we're going to be handling your word this morning. We cannot do this without your grace. We cannot do this, Lord, without the power of your Spirit upon myself, upon us as a congregation. Lord, unless you give us eyes to see this morning, we won't be able to see. Unless you give us ears to hear, Lord, we'll be deaf. But this morning, Lord, I want to pray that it would be a life-changing message for somebody here in this room. Lord, this morning, as your word goes forth, I want to pray that you would just sprinkle it with your blood, that you would help me to say exactly what you want to say and to not say what you don't want to say, Lord, that this morning your word would go forth in power, unhindered, unshackled, Lord, full of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we come into a stage in Nehemiah chapter 12, and if you remember this book, maybe you're joining us for the first time this morning. Nehemiah is a man who's been called by God to go back to Jerusalem. He's serving the Persian king in the capital um, of Susa, and his brother comes back to Nehemiah, and they have a conversation about the state of Jerusalem. And uh, Nehemiah is gripped by the fact that God's holy city is in ruins, and he goes back and he mobilizes God's people, and in 52 days, something miraculous happens. They rebuild an entire walls, a city's walls, which is pretty amazing. They didn't have electricity in those days, big graders and cranes. 52 days, by the help of God, in the teeth of opposition, they do that. But what's interesting is, in the book of Nehemiah, the walls are finished in chapter 6. But now, only six chapters later... Do they dedicate these walls to God? Why on earth would you wait six chapters after a momentous move of God? If it was me, I mean, if I built anything, I would be really, it would be momentous, okay? But if it was me and I was Nehemiah and in 52 days, I oversaw the rebuilding of an entire city's walls, I would be the next day, guys, mad nights, bonfire, praising God, yes, man, we're going to go for it. But they wait six chapters. And so in chapter six, we see the finishing of the walls. But something interesting happens in chapters eight, nine, and ten. Something that you wouldn't expect is we see God not only seeing that the wall gets finished, but in the process, he works on his people. And Nehemiah chapter 12 comes at this point in the book because the walls were ready, yes, for being dedicated, but God's people weren't. And this morning, I want to maybe bring a word of encouragement for you. Maybe you're in a space in your life at the moment where you're in trouble. You didn't ask for it. Like Nehemiah chapter 4, 5, and 6, you're sitting in a state where maybe it's financial, maybe it's health, maybe it's a relationship in your life, and it's causing you a lot of pain. 
There's tremendous suffering. And you're praying, God, would you take this away from me? Would you deal with this situation on my behalf? But what you're finding is, as you're praying this prayer of saying, God, would you deal with this situation or this person in my life? He's dealing with you. You see, guys, the reality is, who you are as a person is more important to God than what you can do for Him. I'll say it again. Who you are as a person is more important to Him, the kind of person you're becoming, than what you can do for Him. Your character is more important than your competence. And this morning, we could have celebrated Nehemiah chapter 6, the dedication of the walls immediately, the finished work of God's people, but the people aren't ready. And this morning, we're going to be looking at how do we become a people set apart, dedicated to God. The other word for this in Scripture is holy. How do we become a people set apart for God? Because who we are becoming as a person before the Lord is just as important as what we have to do for Him. And so we're going to read here in verse 27 of Nehemiah chapter 12, how interestingly, the walls were dedicated, but at the same time, in that process of dedicating the walls to God, the people dedicate themselves as well. So let's read together from verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to what? To celebrate the dedication with gladness with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth, for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And here it is, verse 30. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. And I'm going to quickly just give you a, a quick summary of what happens after that. What they do is they gather all the people from Israel together and they divide them up into two massive choirs. Didn't matter if you could sing or not, you were in, all right? Two massive choirs and one under the leadership of Ezra, they marched. They literally marched on the walls, the Levites and the people around and they did a whole circumference down the south and they just praised God for what he had done. They walked past the walls, those charred bricks that they'd, were lying on the floor, on the ground. Um, when they first arrived in Jerusalem, they had rebuilt, and they just sang thanksgiving and praise to God as a choir. And the south and the second choir went north under the leadership of Nehemiah. And these guys had a party. They were praising God for what he had done. And then the two choirs met in the temple courts, and they came into the presence of God, as the psalmist said, with thanksgiving and with praise. And we pick up in verse 43 where it says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For what? For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Verse 44. On that day, very important, on the same day, only on this day, Men were appointed over the storehouses, the contributions, the first fruits and the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law. Interesting. It had already been required by the law 
hadn't been done yet. For the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. Verse 45. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, that's very important, verse 47, and all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave their daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which were for the sons of Aaron. This morning we are looking at God's work in us to set us apart for himself. Do you know that this morning? That God is determined to make you holy. Remember when I use that word holy, it means to be set apart or dedicated for the pleasure and purpose of God. He's determined to do it. And this weird picture of Levites and priests thousands of years ago mixing blood with water and sprinkling it on them on themselves to purify themselves and sprinkling it on those around them, sprinkling it on the walls and then the gates of the city, is a picture of what happens to us at our salvation. In Romans chapter 12, verse, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to 25, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we're all born with this pollution of sin. As a parent, it is so clear to me, as Sarah is getting older, she was born into sin. At six months old, her will and temper can flare up without her having to argue back or back chat dad. She simply gives her a really good punt of what she wants and when she wants it and how she wants it. And if we don't toe the line, she gives us a piece of her mind or more a piece of her vocal cords. We were born, church, this is very important. This will be the start of understanding the status of your relationship with God this morning is you were born into sin like me. That's a huge problem. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we have this impurity of sin and we cannot go into a pure presence of God because in His presence there is no imperfection. And so there's a problem. And God has to intervene and He does it. He says... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified. In other words, declared not guilty in his courtroom. By what? By sheer grace. By his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, all that's a big language to say this. Is that the way we become a Christian, if you want to know that this morning... You're not a Christian through your dad's faith. You're not a Christian through your society's faith. You're not a Christian through some tradition or regular church attendance. No, no, no. You become a Christian the moment you see that Christ's death on the cross and that blood that poured out from his veins is what God demanded to satisfy his anger against our sin. It comes when we see personally, not for somebody else, for us personally, we were born into sin and that the wages of sin is death and that the way we find forgiveness for sin literally is coming and looking at the cross with personal faith, 
seeing the blood of Jesus being poured out and saying, I trust in his blood to speak for my sin. When I ask this morning, have you ever done that? You're not saved through church? You're not saved through tradition? You're not saved through good behavior? You saved the moment you look at the blood of Christ on the cross being shed for your sin and my sin. And you put your faith, it says you receive it by faith. In other words, you put all your eggs, that old English saying, all your eggs in one basket. You're not holding into any of your own eggs and trying to make it on your own. You literally go, I'm running to you, Jesus. I'm running to the cross and I'm trusting in what you did entirely to satisfy the Father. And what happens is when you do that, the second you do that, you get sprinkled with the blood of Christ. That purification that was happening through the blood and water of those Levites, it happens to you. Literally, God the Father washes you and your sin with the blood of Jesus. And what happens then is, just as they dedicated themselves to God through this purification Friends, you've got to know the second you come to faith in Jesus, He's bought you. He owns you. You are dedicated to Him by the blood of Christ. This picturing of consecrating the walls themselves, their relationships, it is the picture of what happens when Christ applies His blood to you when you come to Him by faith. He owns you. He's bought you. And this picture of blood being sprinkled upon yourself, upon the relationships in your life, upon the, the physical, material things, the gates and the walls in your life, it is a picture of God owning everything that you are. And this radical work of faith in the blood of Christ makes us holy in our position before God. And this is very important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 to 31, it says, And because of Him, because of the will of the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who becomes what to us at salvation? He becomes to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What happens the moment we put our faith in the blood of Jesus is this. We literally receive Jesus in his fullness. Well, that's like, wow, Matthew, what on earth does that mean? It means this. It means everything that Jesus did in his pleasing the Father whilst he was on earth. It's called his righteousness. Every right thing that Jesus did on earth becomes yours by faith. Please, God, that pleasure that Christ brought him through being set apart, dedicated, which means holy, sanctified, becomes yours in Christ Jesus. And so what happens is by faith, something radical happens. That old self that was under the power of sin died. And when you put your faith in the blood of Christ, you were literally born again, and you were born into Christ. All of who Christ is becomes yours. But what does that mean practically? It means this. God takes an oath. He swears that fundamentally, objectively, he is never, ever, ever going to deal with you according to your track record, your performance. He's going to deal with you according to Christ's. I'll say it again. 
your foundation of your relationship with the Father is built on the fact that the Father swears forever that He will only deal with you according to Christ's track record, not our own. That means we never, ever, ever come before the Father based on a confidence on how well we are doing or how we feel. Our confidence is Christ. And because in our salvation we are literally given all that Jesus is, we are placed in Christ, it means we come before the Father who is seated on a throne of grace. We approach with confidence the throne of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need. Church, you got to know that if you've come to a place of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not propping up this salvation by how well you're doing. Christ is propping you up by how well he's done. And you might be feeling on top of the world this morning. You could have had your quiet time before coming to church. Man, you're probably feeling very good coming to the presence of God. I want to tell you, your quiet time, whether it is 24-7, is not good enough to please the Father. You see, we like to go, oh, 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 if I commit some terrible sin, God will not receive me. If I do some vile sin, man, God won't receive me because I would have broken some sort of oath or some sort of covenant with God. Friends, it does not matter how badly you are doing. You don't come to Christ ever based on how well you're doing. I've got to flip it on the other side. You don't come to, to Christ by how well you're doing, how great you are, how, how great your performance is. It doesn't matter how bad you are, where you are right now. You could have sinned five minutes ago, the worst sin you could have done in your, in your life, something that you could never have imagined. Or you could be on the heights of the mountaintops being filled with the Spirit, feeling like you'll never ever sin again. It does not matter where you are in that spectrum. You have to be secure in Jesus. And friends, this morning, do you realize that? How do you relate to God? Do you only feel confident to pray when you've ticked a couple of boxes in your life and you go, okay, I'm, I'm feeling good in His presence? I want to say it does not matter how well you are doing. It does not matter how bad you have done. Our confidence rests entirely in Christ. It is on His track record that the Father receives you. That's the only way we can ask for forgiveness of sin. That's the only way we can have a confidence that God will deal with us when we add our best and when we add our worst. And this position that God puts us in, this is very important. It introduces a tension into the life of the believer. Because how many of you, although you are objectively in Christ, holy, how many of you feel very holy here? I don't. If you were to say to me, Matt, do you feel very holy right now? Heck no. <laughs> I don't feel very holy. Because this is how it works. God makes us holy in our position, but just we are not holy in our behavior yet. You're a new person on the inside. God has made you alive in Christ. You've got to believe that this morning. You're not coming to Christ according to how you feel. You're coming to Him according to faith, and faith has told us in His Word, if you have believed in Jesus, you are a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And this morning... You got to know, you're holy in your position, but man, we're still in the same old, we've got the same old mind, hey? When you came to faith in Jesus, you didn't suddenly forget all the bad things you did in your life, not so. You have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, yeah, that's right. You're in the same body, it still has the same lusts, I still got to fight the same fleshly appetites and desires, not so. 
this morning, you, you face it. Oh, I don't want to get out of bed this morning. <laughs> Do I want to go to church? I don't want to go to church. It's so cold. I'm much rather say bed. You have to put to death this body. You have to say, you have to come and line up with who I am. Because this is it. This is how it works. You are holy in your position before God. But you have to align your behavior with who you are. That process of becoming holy in the way that we think and as we offer up our bodies is called sanctification. Becoming more and more like Jesus. Every bit and piece of our life. And so there is this weird tension in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 14 which says, By a single offering, that's the cross, Christ. By a single offering, He has perfected for all time. In your position before God, you have been perfected in Christ for all time. But... Those who are being made holy. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. You are holy in your position. That is your confidence before God. But there are things in your life that has to align with that. Our behavior has to match who we are in Christ. And friends, I take all this time to say it because of this. Is if we are not aware of this, that God has an agenda... To make us increasingly like Jesus, we're going to be in trouble. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 to 13? He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Notice he says he doesn't say work for it because you've got it by grace. Notice he says, he doesn't say work to keep it. You've got it by grace. He doesn't say work to even prove it. He just says now that you have got it, we have to work out our salvation with what? With fear and with trembling. Why would Paul say that? Because he says in the very next line, for, for, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And church, his good pleasure is to make us look like Jesus. We are being transformed into the image of His Son. We are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. And it says here, He is determined, for it is God who has at work within you. Do you, know that? Do you know that this morning? Your salvation is not passive just to get you into heaven. It introduced an agenda of God. And that agenda is to make you look like Jesus, to make you holy and set apart for Him. And if we resist Him, we're going to be in trouble. Because He is determined, He will... And he will act practically. He will act. He will work to bring about his good pleasure in us. And so for us, this thing about living a dedicated holy life, Mzama preached on it last week, it means every single bit and piece of our life needs to come under the reign, under the rulership of Christ, our car, our body, which is our eyes, our mouths, our ears, our hearts, our hands, our relationships, our mind, our thoughts, everything in our life needs to take on this character of salvation. Salvation has to be worked out. And friends, this morning, if you're not interested in becoming a holy person, you're on a collision course with God. Mark said it this morning, God would rather have us ice cold or burning hot. There's no place for lukewarmness. Because you see, lukewarmness means I want a foot in the world and a foot in the kingdom where God is saying, no, no, my agenda in you is to bring you into the likeness of Christ. And so we have to yield to this work of God in us. We have to yield to becoming holy, dedicated, set-apart people for God. 
And the problem with this is holiness is not automatic. Remember I said, how many of you felt that all of a sudden when you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, suddenly you were just loving everybody everywhere? Hey, anybody experienced that? All of a sudden you just had rainbows and butterflies and unicorns towards everybody. You just wanted to give everyone a Barney hug. Hey? No, no, no. When you came to faith in Lord Jesus Christ, the desire for godliness was there. You have this inner spirit that is willing, but your flesh is weak. And so holiness is not automatic. It requires encouragement. It requires motivation. And this morning in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27 to 47, is we see a case study of how God motivates us to be holy. One way failed miserably. One way was we're going to see the Mosaic law failed. The other way is God's mercy and grace, success. I don't know if you picked it up when I was reading in uh, verse 44, that uh, although the law prescribed these tithes to be given to the temple, remember it took a lot of money to pay the temple personnel, took a lot of money to run such a big thing, sacrifices, food, priesthood, Levites, they all needed stuff to live off. It had been required by the law, but up until Nehemiah chapter 12, it hadn't been done. Here was a command directly from heaven, but yet, despite that, nothing had happened. And in Nehemiah chapter 10 verse 29, I think, Joe, you preached on this here, hey? Did you preach on Nehemiah chapter 10 verse 29, they had sworn to God. In Nehemiah chapter 10, they had said, God, and one of the things they'd spoken about was the temple, right? About bringing in tithes for the temple. They knew in the specifics that God had been speaking to them as a nation, they had not honored giving to the Lord. <laughs> and they took an oath. I'll read it to you. It says, Nehemiah chapter 10 verse 29, they joined with their brothers, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all the commands of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes. They had sworn to God. They had taken an oath. They said, God, we swear and you can curse us if we don't do it. We will pay our tithes to the temple. Nehemiah chapter 12 rocks up and they haven't done it. Isn't that interesting? How many of you this morning have taken an oath before God and have sworn, God, I will never do that thing again. And a couple of hours later, you're doing it. Hey, I'll tell you my one. I was driving here to the ridge uh, last year, and uh, I was trying to be efficient, and I had my cell phone in my hands, and I thought, I'll have it on speakerphone, right? Because you know you're not supposed to talk on your phone, and you know you're a pastor, and a pastor's not supposed to obey the law and be law-abiding. And so I thought, well, I'll have my phone on, on, on speaker, and I'll be driving with my, my hand on the steering wheel. And that's obeying the law. Both hands are on the steering wheel, not so. And uh, who did I see in my rearview mirror? I saw a policeman. And even worse, I saw Debbie as a car behind me. And she sees her pastor being pulled over to the side of the road by a police or traffic officer for breaking the law. And I said to that traffic officer, and you know, you're always so polite. You say, oh, good afternoon, sir. Yes, I am so sorry. Traffic officer, I'm sorry. I will never do that again. One week later, there's Matthew on his cell phone and 
bam, I was like, I swore to that policeman I never would do it again. Man, I, there have been times where I know I've been so impatient with Marina, and I've prayed before the Lord said, and I, and I feel so good. Eh? I come out and say, I will not get upset with my wife. I will not get irritated with anybody today. Half an hour later, something happens where maybe we're a bit grumpy with each other, and I get so offended or I get so upset, I'm so irritable with my wife. I've just taken an oath. I've just sworn and said, God, I won't do this. Half an hour later, I'm doing it. That's what we like. And some of us have made big promises to God. You've bargained with him this morning. You know in your track record, you say, God, if you forgive me for this sin, I will never go back to it. I'll never go back to that person. I'll never go back to that thing. I'll, I'll never do that again. If you just rescue me, if you just forgive me, I swear I'll never do it again. What's the success rate like in this room? Pretty pathetic, I'd say, hey? Church, we need to know this morning that holiness it's not something external. That's not where we start. Some of you might have come from a church background like my parents, where holiness was very strict. My parents did not, weren't allowed to go to the cinema, weren't allowed to attend dances. How many of you come from that kind of background, where you were saved into a church that uh, was ex- incredibly strict? No earrings, no makeup, dresses. Maybe this is the first time you've really even heard about holiness come from two extremes. The modern culture doesn't like this topic. The previous, previous generation, it was all about holiness. You see, we, we immediately started to think about what must I give up and what must I not do and what must I do in order to be holy to God. That comes second. Holiness starts with the heart. Don't you think it's interesting that in Psalm 51, remember that story with King David? It's a very sexy story. There he is on his... Uh, balcony and he sees this woman bathing naked she's beautiful Bathsheba and uh, he invites her into his room he sleeps with her he commits adultery and he thinks it's all done and dusted and he sends her off home but uh, Bathsheba a month later goes I've got a problem I'm not having my period I'm pregnant and so David makes a plan he tries to get Uriah her husband to sleep with Bathsheba so that it can be Uriah's son but Uriah won't so he murders Uriah it's a terrible story and Nathan the prophet comes to David and he says, David, you've sinned. And he convicts David of his sin. And what does David pray in Psalm 51? He says, he doesn't worry about what he has to do in terms of the law. He starts off by saying, Lord, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, we tend to think holiness is a direct attack on the world. We want to bend ourselves. I will never, ever, ever do that again. God, I swear, I'll never sin in that way. When we put pressure on ourselves and we try and bend our will to do it, but we find it just flips back again. In actual fact, holiness starts with the inclination of our hearts. And until that happens, until there's a persuasion of our hearts, The will doesn't follow. And so this morning, this comparison between law versus mercy and grace is fundamental to our understanding of holiness. See, the reason why the Mosaic law failed for the Israelites is because it put maximal pressure on them to bend their will, but it could not persuade the heart. 
And the Mosaic law, do you know that you had to obey 613 commandments? How's that? I struggle with one. Love your neighbor as yourself. They had 613. And what the Lord did was, the way it motivated you was, it put maximal pressure. The, they, they would give the harshest sentences for what we would consider pretty arbitrary. Are there any young children? Dev, if you were disobedient to your mom and dad, they could execute you under the law. What they would have done is they would have taken stones, all the church would have got together, and if they said, this child is driving me crazy, they threatened execution, and they would execute Dev. How's that, eh? Maybe some of you parents go, yes, we like that idea. The threat of execution could be very, very effective. Do you know that if you walked too far on the Sabbath, you would be executed? Let's say you were maybe playing soccer, and you kicked that ball into a ravine, and there were too many steps to go and fetch it. The fact that you're playing soccer on a Sabbath on the first day would have been execution. But let's say you kicked the ball, you would have been killed. Harsh. Harsh, harsh, harsh. The law put maximal pressure on you to obey because it had to bend the will. And the problem was, despite all of this pressure placed upon the will, it could only produce a very low standard of godliness. People have a great admiration of the Mosaic Law. In our city, people will tell you, you have to keep the Mosaic Law, really? Under the Mosaic Law, it allowed slavery. Under the Mosaic Law, it never told you to pray. Read the Torah. Not once does the Mosaic Law tell you to pray. Do you know that you could have more than one wives? If you liked Teresa and Bridget and Monique, you could have them all under the Mosaic Law. Genesis chapter 2 in, in marriage, just one wife, one husband. The law allowed divorce for poor cooking. The law allowed divorce for all sorts of things. The problem with it was, despite all of this threat of punishment, its standard was so low. low. I want to say to you, if somebody comes to you and says, you have to keep the Mosaic Law, I want to say, you tell them, that standard's too low for me in Christ. The Mosaic law is just a foreshadow of Jesus. The fullness of the power of God's intent for humanity came in Christ. And so this morning, I want to say to you, if you're living under law, you might be like, why am I going on about law? Why is Matt talking about Because we live under it. You know how it is to live under law? It's placing a confidence in your performance before God. The way law works is if I check so many boxes, it means I'm okay with God. And that means I have confidence in His presence because of my performance. I want to say, if that's where you relate to God, you're in trouble. Because what the law will introduce into your life is misery. Because if you earnestly want to set apart your life for God and you live off law, what you will discover is this. God's standard is here. And you're trying so hard to keep it, but you can only reach here. And so instead of you feeling like Nehemiah chapter 12, this joy and this, this thanksgiving and praise, what will happen to you is you will actually experience resentment towards God because God will say, you have to live like this and you're going, I'm trying to in my best to meet that so that I can have a relationship with you, but I can't. And that actually means I end up being resentful towards you. What's your primary emotion before God this morning? Is it guilt? Is it always feels like it's condemnation? You never have a confidence to come into His presence. You always feel this little bit of guilt. You always feel this insufficiency, this inadequacy in yourself. 
never quite feel you can yield yourself to God because you never quite feel you've reached the mark. Friends, that's law. That's law. And I'm going to close very briefly. I've got so much more to say. But what motivated the Jews was not law. They had had it for centuries and they didn't tithe. I want to say to you, if you want to give your money to God, tithe, it's not law that's going to tell you. It's not me standing up saying you have to give 10% of your money. In actual fact, it'll just offend you. But what will make you respond differently is not starting with what I have to do for God. It's starting with what God has done for me. You see, the way that our hearts melt and are motivated to live for Jesus is by seeing first what he's done for us. The thing that got the Israelites to live for God on that day, to do what the Lord prescribed for centuries, was the moment they took time to behold the mercy of God. They took their time to walk and give thanks around the entire perimeter of the city. They took time to just marvel at God's mercy. I want to ask you this morning, put yourself in their position. Imagine yourself a Jew. Just a while ago, they were cut off from God's presence, cut off from His promises, cut off from His purposes. They were exiled in Babylon. They were going to rot there. And God in His mercy raises up a king brings them back and if you were if if i was them i would just be marveling at god's grace in bringing them back to jerusalem temple provided for wall rebuilt those charred bricks in that wall god working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose and my challenge to us this morning is this do you know that we're exactly like those jews we were exiled from God's presence because of our sin far from his presence and purpose and in God's mercy he sends Jesus and he dies a death we were supposed to die fulfilling the law he lives a life we were supposed to live and in God's mercy by grace he brings us back to himself and it's when we see that you see our great problem is we are so forgetful our great problem is we tend to forget God's mercy when we're under pressure, under trial, temptation, just general day-to-day life. But have you ever thought in, one Lament- in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 19 and 24, why it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Why, do they, why are they new? Why are God's mercies new? every morning it is because we have to have them minister to us afresh every day we have to enter into his mercy we're there but in our minds in our hearts his mercy must become fresh to us every day and on that day like these guys on that day we remember what christ has done for us we'll have power our hearts will be in the right place we will know we have access to the savior who is keeping us and leading us and shaping us it's when we forget that we don't have power. It's when we forget that we go back to law. It's when we forget that we go back to being depressed, we go back to being defeated, go back feeling we cannot do this on our own. Friends, we cannot do this without the mercy of God. The confidence that we have, you might have sinned this morning and you say, how can I come back to God? You come back according to God's mercy. 
You might, have be on, you might be experiencing Jesus during the week and His presence might be so powerful for you. That's wonderful. But it's by God's mercy you're getting it. This morning, we have to live from God's mercy. And the way we have to do it is we have to set aside time. I'm not talking about a long prayer meeting every day. If you can spend time praying for an hour every day, that's wonderful. Do it. But some of us in the morning, we've got to get up. We've got to go to work. We've got to get things done. We can start with every morning as we are getting our head off the pillow saying, Jesus is alive. I am forgiven. I have been set free by the, by the blood of Christ. I am in Christ. And because Christ is alive this morning, I'm alive. We start every day in God's mercy and we keep ourselves there. And I make you a promise. I make you a promise. If you do that, on that day, you'll have power that you would not have had without it. You will have such a sense of God's presence at work. Jude, chapter, Jude verse 20 says, we have to keep ourselves in the love of God. In other words, we stay where we are. We stay where God has put us. But we have to keep ourselves meditating, thinking, nourishing, guarding this mercy of God towards us. And so for you this morning, where are you? Are you under law? If you're under law, you won't experience the joy, thanksgiving, and praise of Nehemiah chapter 12. You won't experience the joy of the Lord as your strength. The recovery is this. It's beholding what God has done for you. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of what? In view of God's mercy, offer up yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. When last have you just marveled at the mercy of God? That's what's going to persuade you. That's what's going to give you the power you need to enter into this joy and thanksgiving and strength in Christ. There are things you've got to do, yeah. But if you don't put that first, you'll be in trouble. Let's pray. I want you just to take a moment this morning. What's your status with God? Friends, we're about to go into a busy week. There are going to be pressures on us. We're about to go back into raising kids, running families, keeping a job, putting food on the table. And the risk is this morning, we just fall back into the same way of thinking. I want to ask you again this morning, where are you with the Lord? Have you been living under law? Are you working somehow to just be right with the Savior? Or in, is this morning a place where you're coming afresh and saying, God, I'm living of what you've done for me. I'm marveling. I'm desiring this mercy of God.
Father, you know where each one of us are this morning. And these times are so good to set apart ourselves afresh, to dedicate ourselves, to realize that, God, you are wanting to raise up our holy people, set apart every bit and piece of our life, being conformed to you, Jesus, to be conformed to our position in you. And so, Lord, as we go out this morning, I want to pray that you would keep us in the mercy of God. Help us, Lord, to be a people that don't run ahead of you, relying on our own selves, Lord, relying on our own energy and strength and power to live a life that you call us to know, Lord. Help us to see first and to live from this place, from what you have done for us, to keep our souls rejoicing in the joy of the Lord. Help us to see afresh that, Lord, this is entirely based on you. It's entirely based on your grace towards us, that we have power and strength to face what is before us. That, Lord, by your mercy, your strength is made perfect in our weakness. We ask this, Lord, we set ourselves afresh before you. We want to be a people that seek after you, starting with your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.